electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Power Lunch. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. We have a jam-packed show for you, two topics uh, which have a, uh, had a major impact on business this year. First is generative AI. We're going to talk to New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about his plans to get the state ready to be a leader in artificial intelligence. And Senators uh, Warner and Kennedy will join us as they introduce a bill aimed at protecting the financial markets from AI manipulation. Plus, retail theft is changing the way we shop. As more items are locked away, is it ruining the consumer experience in store? That and a closer look at Target's decision to close some stores due to crime rates. But first, to check on the markets as the Dow is once again hitting new highs. You can see it there after crossing 37,000 for the first time. We're now more than halfway to 38. The S&P and Nasdaq also both hitting new 52-week highs today. All right, we began with the artificial intelligence boom. As U.S. states race to gain an edge in this new technology, New Jersey is establishing a new AI hub at Princeton University as part of a, an initiative to make New Jersey a national leader in AI, and it follows the state's creation of an AI task force in October to train state employees on it. Joining us now, uh, first on CNBC, to talk about the AI push and much more, is New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. Welcome back, uh, Governor Murphy. Good as always to see you. Good to be back with you, folks. Thanks for having me. Delighted to, uh, that you could join us. Let's talk first about the initiative with Princeton uh, in AI. What is it exactly? How will you and the university collaborate? And what do you hope to achieve? Yeah, my late mother used to say you're known by the company you keep. We couldn't be keeping better company than Princeton University. Uh, this is, a, just as you suggest, it's a generative AI hub. Uh, it will be located on or near the Princeton campus. Our economic development authority will put significant amount of capital to work. Uh, and the notion that the ground zero for generative AI is overwhelmingly in the Bay Area. When you ask the folks out there, why are they there? It's because that's where the talent is. So my fervent hope is that we can recreate a hub on the East Coast. And I'm quite confident that working with Princeton we could do just that. And as you also mentioned, we announced a task force and some other steps a couple of months ago. Generative AI will, will change our society, never, never mind uh, the, the technology in our society. It, it will run throughout state government, society, and beyond, and, and we want to be out ahead of it. What makes uh, uh, initiatives like this uh, really uh, take off uh, from, from a standing still start uh, is money. Where's the money? How much of, a, of an investment is being made here and who's making it? It'll be both Princeton and the state of New Jersey through our Economic Development Authority. The, 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 the dollar amount is yet to be determined, but this is not the first hub we've, we've done in New Jersey. Uh, we've done uh, several of these and we typically put 20 to $25 million uh, to work in, in these sorts of hubs. I would envision something in that range from our side. I, I don't want to speak for Princeton, but mm -hmm. I, would, I would guess that they'll be in uh, for, for something uh, comparable. How, uh, 
uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the sort of the end result. If all of this goes as you would hope it would, I assume you would uh, you would expect to generate jobs uh, from this from this initiative, either people who work in the hub or companies that come and locate uh, uh, in central New Jersey or elsewhere in New Jersey, because that's it becomes a hub for generative AI. And it would address one of the things that has been kind of surprising to me as a resident of the state, and that is rising unemployment in the state of New Jersey. How, 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 explain why unemployment's been going up a little bit in New Jersey and how many jobs yeah. you think this hub could create ultimately. Well, uh, let me start with the hub and the jobs uh, uh, that I, I, I think you're, first of all, exactly right. The economic development aspect of this could be significant. Uh, and you're seeing companies measured. We've got one company in New Jersey already in the data center hard, hardware side of this industry. Uh, just did a recent round of financing, valuing them at $8 billion. And they're a relatively new startup. Sorry, my earpiece is giving me trouble here. That's all right. Um, so that's, that's clearly a, a big part of this. Secondly, I think it will better inform us as it relates to uh, regulatory and ethical issues. And thirdly, you know, our hope is that we can deliver government services in a hyper-efficient, responsible way. And I think this hub could impact all three of those. I'm not terribly worried about the unemployment rate. Uh, we are a little bit above uh, the national average, although uh, we're suffering what a lot of states are suffering, which is a mismatch. So we're desperate for folks to go in, for instance, to education and healthcare, nursing in particular. Uh, but, but coming out of the pandemic, we were a little bit slower to achieve uh, the, our lowest levels of unemployment, but we did. In fact, we led the nation for a period of time. I would suspect uh, that this is a temporary lead lag. We're doing an enormous amount to try to make, uh, to get that pipeline of educators and healthcare workers uh, as vibrant and as full as possible. The only thing I wonder, Governor, apologies, I hope you can hear us okay, but the only thing I wonder is, is the cost of living, is that an area where it's harder for New Jersey to fill, fill and attract some of those positions that are lower paying than obviously the jobs in uh, New York, Manhattan, or some of the high value finance areas that obviously make the state a little bit more affordable for people? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. It's, it's a good question. First of all, our economy, this is back a little bit to AI, we are an innovation economy. So we are bio, pharma, life sciences, tech, telecom, fintech. So we are hyper uh, innovative in, in our economy. Secondly, cost of li living matters a lot to us. That's why I'm finishing up my sixth year. We've had 20 separate tax cuts for the middle class and seniors, none more importantly than a huge program directed at property taxes. So making sure that the deal, if you will, in New Jersey for a worker or a family is a fair one. That is a huge priority for us, and it will continue to be. I guess if we could turn now a little bit to what's going on nationally, we'd love your thoughts on the early race that's shaping, not that early, Iowa's a couple weeks away uh, in terms of what's going to happen on the Republican side. What do you make of President Biden's fitness for office, his energy level? I think he's, he's the right person to be leading Democrats to another term here. Yeah, I have no doubt about his fitness. Um, he's, he's 81, obviously, uh, but uh, he's sharp as a tack, and you can see that. We've known him for a long time, and, and I have no issues at all about that. I was just encouraged to see a poll that I just, I believe, just came out from New York Times Siena that has him up two points against Trump in a, uh, 
in a head-to-head, -head, and I think it was of likely voters. Um, I, I think you're going to see connecting the unemployment question with the president's popularity. I, I really believe there's a lead lag here where the macro data is clearly getting better. Inflation is coming down. It's come down without having blown up unemployment. On the one hand, it hasn't hit. You know, if you're in a grocery store or a gas station or getting a mortgage right now, you haven't felt it yet for sure. But I believe it's only a matter of time. And with that, I believe the president's uh, support will, will solidify. And this poll, I think, is maybe an early sign of that. But there certainly hasn't been. The administration has not received much, if any, credit for the, for the economy. That's number one. And in this morning's New York Times, uh, there was a strong sense that um, the, the population does not approve of his handling of the, the U.S. relations with, the, with, the, with respect to Israel and Gaza and that, and that he does not score well there. Let me ask the question just simply and directly, Governor. Uh, would the Democratic Party be better off if Joe Biden were not the candidate? No, and, and I, I say that emphatically. He has, I believe, an extraordinarily strong record to run on. Uh, this is not a question, are we speculating what kind of president he would be? Uh, this is not a hypothetical. And I think you're right, especially on the, the point in the economy, uh, and I think it's that lead lag factor that I referred to a minute ago. I believe it's only a matter of time until he does get that credit when that, that reduction in interest rates and inflation hits the so-called man on the street. You're seeing it early signs of that, for instance, at the gas pump where gas prices have come down meaningfully. You've got markets that are strong and they usually are a precursor to the underlying realities. You've got a good, another good day in the market today. So I really believe it's only a matter of time, and I believe he has got a, an exceptional record to run on. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing everything I can to help him. Governor, one more. You know, Princeton has been slightly swept up in the drama among higher uh, education institutions lately. You're a Harvard and a Penn guy yourself. Are you satisfied with some of the changes in leadership we've seen at those institutions, or do you think more needs to be done? I'm not close enough to, uh, I, I'm not like I used to be when I was either going there or involved on boards, uh, but uh, genocide does not need context. Uh, we don't need to ever equivocate about rape or sexual violence. Uh, there's no question who started this thing, uh, and that is Hamas, and, and uh, those are all clear as a bell facts. I pray, I pray, pray, pray that innocence on both sides of this war are protected as much as possible. Uh, you saw a brutal, barbaric invasion on October 7, and you've seen now many, many thousands of innocent folks on both sides of this paying an enormous price. I pray for peace. I pray that Israel in this case, and Hamas, by the way, who uses humans as shields, and we all know that, 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 that we can do everything we can to protect the innocents on both sides of this. May I, may I conclude by pulling us back to domestic politics and, and New Jersey politics? Senator Menendez is under indictment. You've called for his resignation. Your wife is, uh, has declared her candidacy to uh, run in a primary for his seat. Uh, where do things stand there? Uh, and I, I don't know what question to ask because I know it's obviously coming right into your household there, and it's a, it's a tough one for you to, to answer. But, but obviously you would prefer to see Mr. Menendez uh, resign. And I assume you would prefer to see your wife in the Senate. Yeah, you're innocent until proven guilty in America, and that always must be the case. 
But when you take into account the broader interests here, uh, from the moment this indictment came down, uh, it, it, I, I asked for Senator Menendez to step down for the broader interests uh, so he could focus on defending himself. And, and by the way, as a former U.S. ambassador, this now appears also to include accusations of foreign agency, and that's just too much for the market to bear, as it were. Uh, completely separately, because my wife had never thought about this for a moment before that indictment came out, uh, she, I'm incredibly proud of her. She declared just over a month ago, she's running like heck. She's had a great record to run on as a full-time volunteer first lady over the past six years, whether it's infant mortality, uh, climate education. Uh, we're the only state in America that teaches, embeds climate education into K through 12. Uh, defending reproductive freedoms and right to abortion, climate more broadly. Um, in, in baseball terms, she's a five-tool athlete. I could not be more proud of her. And she's out there trying to earn every single vote in every corner of the state. Governor Murphy, always good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, folks. We appreciate it. And wouldn't it be nice to have an AI hub here yeah. in, in New Think Jersey? Of the jobs. Coming up, we'll have more on artificial intelligence with two senators sponsoring a bipartisan bill to protect financial markets from AI manipulation. We'll want the details on that. But first, if you haven't gotten all your shopping done by now, you're probably going to have to hit the stores in the next few days. We'll tell you what to expect in that experience. Power Lunch will be right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to <clears throat> excuse me, Power Lunch, everybody. There are only five days left until Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Uh, which means if you haven't already ordered it online, a trip to the uh, store may be your best option, Tyler. Uh, but many shoppers <laughs> are unhappy with the in-store experience. Our senior retail reporter, Courtney Reagan, joins us now with more. Court. You know, Tyler, as you mentioned, stores are probably going to be pretty crowded this mm. weekend. Yeah. You're running out of time uh -huh. for online orders. They actually call Saturday Super Saturday, mm. as it turns out. Expected to be the second busiest uh, day, actually, in-store for in-store shopping because, of course, you're out of time for Christmas. It's always the last Saturday. Very busy for retailers, of course, because of the timing of the calendar. And that's going to be the same this year as well, according to Sensormatic. But lately, in-store shopping, it's not always a great 
experience. Retail store employees are being asked to do more. They're fulfilling online orders, but from store inventory. They're unlocking cases so shoppers can get to even basic items in some cases. And while some retailers have called out theft as an issue, none have quantified lost sales or traffic from honest but frustrated shoppers as a result of locking up goods. Though social media is full of examples if you take a look. So we asked Bizarre Voice to conduct a national survey for us at the end of November, asking consumers about the in-store experience now compared to pre-COVID. So this exclusive data shows while the majority of customers like the additional security cameras or entrance or exit alert sensors, 42% feel product availability in the store has gotten worse. 41% think the ease of accessing those products are worse since before the pandemic. 72% notice the lack of available associates when they need help. And while there's debate about whether theft is actually worsening in retail, 42% of consumers report having had an experience with customer theft, meaning Whoa. they saw it happen. I've seen it happen. It's pretty startling, especially when you're with your kids. Or were you in the city when this happened? I feel I like was. I'm living in a bubble because I don't experience any of these stores. I, I was. I, I the, the one experience I'm thinking of, like right away, I was I was in the city and it was fairly brazen. Wow. Gentleman had a book bag. He took it off. He looked around briefly and then just put a bunch of stuff in his book bag. I quietly went over and told one of the associates. And she kind of said thank you, but didn't do anything as I expected. But it felt like my citizen's duty to say something. And he just walked away. You're braver than me. I'm not even even sure I want to say anything. Uh, Courtney, stay right there. For more, let's talk uh, about the store experience with our next guest, the impact on the consumer this holiday season. Let's bring in Sandra Campos. She's founder of Fashion Launchpad and a CNBC contributor. So, Sandra, I'm with Tyler. I might have to be hitting the stores Uh uh, in person Saturday for some desperate last minute shopping. And um, do you do you think that stores are kind of putting themselves out out of business? I mean, this this jibes perfectly with Steve Leisman's consumer survey last hour that found, you know, it's all about online. It's more and more we're heading that way. More and more we're heading that way. But, you know, loss prevention and customer experience really have gone hand in hand. There's, when you talk about what the crappy experience is, there's some retailers like Uniqlo that's actually having a positive self-service experience and 90% of their stores are having self-service options. I love have- those checkouts, by the way, the RFID. Ah. Can we get those in every grocery store <laughs> and every place in America? Yeah, and then you have Walmart as an example, bringing more stuff back to cash registers. So you're, you're seeing a very different type of approach right now, but we definitely have sales teams that are being stressed. And as you said, they have to be more proactive, identifying some of those potential issues and trying to mitigate losses. But, you know, you mentioned some of the some of the issues and the theft issues that you've actually seen in person, but some of the external theft really is about 35 to 45% of the shrink, but internal theft actually accounts for 30, 40% of it as well. So, you know, products being locked and gated, but we've also come out of a couple of years of some challenging supply chain um, deliveries. And we've had in the past year, a real reduction in terms of what the inventory is in stores right now because retailers are challenged to be more profitable. So they have to get the right amount of goods in the stores and not have too much. Are we just going to have to get used to the idea over the next generation uh, that that merchandise is going to be locked up because of theft? Or is, is, there, is the solution stricter enforcement of the law within the stores? Are stores going to have to hire off-duty uh, police officers to... To, to arrest people? What, what's the solution here? Well, there's definitely, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Or the $10 million question. But the reality is that there do have to be changes on both sides. Laws definitely have to be impacting because at this point, if you can walk into a store and be brazen enough to, to grab an entire rack and walk out the store with it, 
you have no consequences. You're not worried about it. So that's been a lot of what's been happening. On the other hand, obviously, stores do have less sales staff in the stores. And that's because they're trying to have profitability. They're lowering their operating expenses, which in turn relates to having fewer staff in the stores. So we have to have a balance. Um, definitely technology is going to be playing some impact there. There's a company, Ubic, that's actually helping to be able to reinforce and help the, cust- uh, the salespeople rather work with more customers instead of spending more time on the administrative aspects of it. They're also helping them try to mitigate some of those losses by predicting and being able to really be on top of some of that potential theft in stores. Mm-hmm. But it's challenging. This is not easy. It's not easy for people working in stores. It's not easy for management to try to determine what that solution I mean, actually is. Court, I, yeah. I guess, I guess, uh, I don't, I don't want to mean to pretend to speak for most people, no. but, but. I think an awful lot of shoppers who who uh, go to stores would say, "Well, if somebody takes something, mm-hmm. they ought to have a consequence. They ought to be arrested. They ought to get a citation for that. They ought to have some consequence. You shouldn't just be able to do that and ruin uh, a, a business, ruin the experience of honest shoppers because they're afraid to go into a store right. because of theft bandit bands of thieves and right. so forth." I- I mean, I I think that is probably true in a lot of cases. Whenever we talk about this, it it does sort of turn into a political chess match, for lack of a better word, because different municipalities enforce this in different ways. And frankly, the facts do bear out that the higher the felony threshold is, often more you you will see more theft in those areas. The criminals understand, in as other words, Sandra if was the, saying. The, the felony threshold is, in other words, it's not a felony uh, if the value of the goods taken is not more than $1,000. Exactly. So they'll walk out with $950, and the next day, they'll do it again. Mm-hmm. So there is a piece of legislation that has been proposed, but it has not gone through committee, uh, that would that would try to impose a federal st- a standard that aggregates the, the stolen good value to $5,000, over the course of any 12-month period, and then that could be a felony that a local prosecutor could seek um, to levy. So th- a lot of this does, unfortunately, become very political, and it, and it happens, it has to do with enforcement. But yeah, when you see it, especially when you're with your kids, it's pretty startling. Um, you know, none of us want to have to deal with locked up What do cases. the stores say? What are, what are the targets, the Walmarts, the Coles, the Macy's, what do they say about it? What do they want to see done? So almost everyone that we've talked to from the retail side say that they're doing what they can, but they acknowledge that there's only so much they can do and that they believe that they also need help from local law enforcement and beyond. And at the same time, the local law enforcement say the same thing from the retailers. In a lot of cases, retailers will start to give Mm. information to law enforcement about criminals that are sort of repeat criminals so that law enforcement can begin to build a case. But they're complicated and they take a really long time. All right, got to leave it there. Courtney Reagan, Sandra Campos, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And speaking of retail, Target initially blamed theft and violence when it closed nine of its stores earlier this year. But a new CNBC investigation revealed the reasoning ran much, much deeper than that. We will explain when Power Lunch returns. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com designed for work. Canva. Hi, welcome back to Power Launch, everybody. In September, Target announced it would close nine stores. The reason given? To prioritize worker and shopper safety. CNBC.com retail reporter Gabrielle Fonrouge has done a deep dive looking at the stores Target closed and the ones it chose to keep open. And Gabby is here on set with us now. What did you find? Was it, was it true uh, what they say? In other words, they were trying to prioritize worker and shopper safety, or was it something else that so, was behind the closures? Tyler, if Target was trying to prioritize worker and you know, customer safety, they would have closed the stores that are still open. What my investigation found is that the stores that Target chose to keep open in nearby locations um, actually had way higher crime incidents than the ones that they closed. So what we did is I pulled public records from all the police departments that saw, that saw store closures that was going to be in Seattle, Portland, New York City, and um, San Francisco Bay Area. And so what you'll see is that the stores that were closest to the ones that it closed had higher crime incidents in all but one case. So we have data on 21 stores. Only one store that closed had higher crime than the one that it kept open nearby. So, so why were the ones that didn't have the highest crime the ones that got closed? So there's a lot of factors that could be at play here. And, you know, what's important to point Are out they just is underperformers? That's what it looks like. Um, you know, some of these stores were in, uh, had less foot traffic than other ones. Like the San Francisco store is a really great example. The one that they kept open was in the heart of San Francisco's tourist and shopping district, right there in Union Square. It's packed. And then the one that they closed was downtown near a highway. Um, homeless encampments had set up nearby. It had way less foot traffic. It was just a quieter part of town. And you can see that in different parts. And there was also some cannibalization. But it wasn't that it had higher theft. It didn't have higher theft. It didn't have higher theft. The Based one on in, in, in Union Square had higher theft. Exactly. Higher foot traffic, more people, higher theft, compared with the one in the, in the relative backwater where there was more homelessness, where there was less foot traffic. Exactly. And the reason why this is a story, I mean, a retailer can close a store. There's a whole lot of business reasons why a retailer may close a store. But when Target made this announcement, first of all, it's not news when a retailer closes nine stores, especially one of Target's size. They do this every single year. But they sent out a big press release saying that organized retail crime was threatening the safety of guests and employees. And for that reason, they couldn't keep the stores open anymore. And if that was really the case, then they would have closed the other stores because those appear to be a lot more dangerous. I suppose if I were them, I could say, well, in some locations, maybe the crime is more of a threat because the locations are inherently more unsafe, like you described, a little mm -hmm. bit more off the beaten path. And the other thing is if they're less profitable stores, then the theft, you know, theft per sales per square foot yes. or something might look a little bit different than just overall levels, you know, blanket levels. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Kelly. And also, it's important to point out that my data doesn't show the full picture. We know that theft often goes, you know, th crime overall, it often goes undetected and unreported. But without Target's own internal data, which they refuse to share with us, that's the only picture that we have. And it shows a very clear trend. Yeah. All right. Gabby, thanks. Gabrielle Thank Fonrouge. Let's get over to Kate Rooney now for a CNBC News update. Kate? Hi there, Kelly. Ukraine's military wants to mobilize up to 500,000 more troops to fight Russia's invasion. But President, President Vladimir Zelensky says he's asking military officials to spell out their plans in detail before approving the ask, according to Zelensky. That kind of mobilization would cost about $13.4 billion. Russia currently far outnumbers Kiev's forces. 
The governor of New York signed a bill into law today that forms a commission to study possible reparations to address the state's history of slavery and racism. This makes this marks the second state in the nation to form a task force on the issue after California launched its own commission this summer. The group in New York has been given a year to deliver that report. And Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville says that he may drop the rest of his holds on military nominations, a move that would end his protest to a Pentagon abortion access policy. He dropped hundreds of holds earlier this month, but kept nearly a dozen on four-star generals in place. Senator Tuberville told Politico he will now let them through. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he'll bring the promotions up for a vote this week. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Ahead on Power Lunch, manipulation situation. The rise of AI leading to concerns over bad actors using it to disrupt financial markets. But a new proposed bill in the Senate is aiming to prevent that. We'll get the key details when Power Lunch returns. Back to Power Lunch. Continued investor optimism. The Fed will pivot and start cutting rates next year, pushing up the broader indexes today. Both the Dow and NASDAQ 100 hit their record intraday highs. Uh, and while our next guest expects the rally in stocks to continue, she cautions that the markets are a little bit too optimistic about when and how many times the central bank will lower rates over the next year. Joining us for more is Ann Milletti, head of active equity at Allspring Global Investments. Ann, welcome. Nice to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, you say the market is just sort of anticipating a little more than the Fed is likely to give. How much more uh, is it anticipating than you think the Fed is likely to provide? Yeah, it's a, it's a million-dollar question. It's hard to say, Tyler, but I think the market is anticipating at least six cuts as we head into 2024. And to me, it's pretty hard to have it both ways. It's pretty hard to have an economy that you know, looks to be pretty stable and strong and still pricing in six cuts for next year. It feels like if we're going to get six cuts, the economy has to weaken in a significant way or the job market has to look much more weak than it does. So if the market doesn't get the six cuts that it is pricing in or anticipating, then what is the effect on the market, which, as we just pointed out, uh, you're seeing all-time highs on the Dow and, and, and close to it on a couple of the other uh, barometers. What, what is the market reaction likely to be? What does it mean for, for example, the magnificent seven stocks that have led the way this year? That's a great question, Tyler. I mean, I think what makes me a little uncomfortable is the multiple expansion we're getting off the excitement. Now, I understand it. Um, as soon as Powell came out and kind of confirmed that rate cuts are next and kind of became a little bit more dovish than he was just 12 days prior, it did signal to the market that, you know, the Fed put is back again. Um, and so that is not a surprising reaction. What, what does make me more uncomfortable is that multiple expansion that you get immediately without fundamentals first coming. Um, and so areas like the Meg 7, which did have good earnings in 2023, but also appreciated due to multiple expansion, it's going to be much more difficult for them in 2024 to continue to grow earnings at the same rate they did in 2023. So what we're doing is looking more broadly across the markets at areas that didn't participate in 2023. Those areas have much better risk return in 2024, areas like healthcare. 
Well, uh, the only thing, Anne, is that that's kind of the consensus right now. So we go back to a year ago when obviously the consensus was recession. That didn't happen. So at what point if we get into 2024, if those if the mag seven are up 10 percent, do you change the playbook? Yeah, I mean, Kelly, like, look, I think the playbook and and, um, consensus was very different probably two weeks ago than it is today. Everybody Mm -hmm. is very, very bullish. And, you know, I don't think the market has turned away from the Meg 7. I I think there is still a belief that there's still good earnings growth there. We've just really are hesitant to believe that the earnings growth can be as good. And if you look at relative earnings growth, I think healthcare shows earnings growth of 20% or more, probably the best earnings growth of all the sectors in the S&P and across some other indices as well in 2024. We think if that's achievable, you're going to get multiple expansion on top of that, leaving much better risk reward in in sectors like that where, yes, you've seen some appreciation, but you haven't seen it driven by both earnings and multiple expansion. So again, we're looking much more actively at areas of the market that just haven't been pushed up all on all on multiple. Right. Absolutely. No, believe me, I I get it. It, it makes sense. <laughs> you know. And thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it today. Thank you. And Maletti joining us with All Spring. And still to come, AI and the financial markets. A proposed bill is aiming to help avoid manipulation of the financial system by bad actors using AI. We'll speak with the two senators behind the bipartisan-backed proposal, two of them. Uh, Power Lunch will be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Power Lunch. Senators John Kennedy and Mark Warner are out with new bipartisan legislation today dubbed the Financial Artificial Intelligence Risk Reduction Act. The bill would require the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, to lead its member agencies in responding to AI manipulation of financial markets. Let's dive deeper into the legislation now with Senator John Kennedy and Senator Mark Warner. Pleased to have both of you join us. Welcome. Thank you. Senator Warner, I'll start with you. Why start here in this realm of the financial markets um, in in what is kind of yet to be fully defined as a threat when we know that we've resisted kind of broader uh, moves by the Pope and others in this country to come up with comprehensive AI regulation? Why start here? Well, I've been surprised there's not been more attention focused on this. I mean, the two areas where AI right now could have the most dramatic effect is undermining faith in our public elections and faith in our public markets. And John and I, who worked together on a lot of these topics, said, let's not try to boil the ocean. Let's go out with some specific legislation to make sure, without adding a whole lot of new laws, that we both enhance the ability for the FSOC, which frankly has had a mixed record over the last 10 plus years, Mm -hmm. but give them the responsibility on a broad look and also put in place some additional penalties if some of these AI tools are used to manipulate the markets. Senator Kennedy, why aren't the existing laws sufficient uh, to go after any sort of bad actors here? And what kind of, uh, of problems do you envision? Well, the, exi- the existing laws are not sufficient because AI is rel- relatively new. And, and I would make three quick points. Number one, this is a personal opinion. I think, I think of artificial intelligence will make our lives better if it doesn't kill us first. Uh, Number two, the point of this bill is to try to make our lives better. Uh, Point three, I do not believe that Congress is ready 
uh, to pass a, uh, a, a comprehensive artificial intelligence bill. So we ought to break it up into bite-sized pieces and start with financial fraud and the Financial Stability Oversight Council, FSOC as we call it, is, uh, is the best group to advise Congress. And that's what this bill does. It turns the FSOC loose and says, come up with recommendations and give them to us and let us respond. And I think it'll work. Why, why uh, Senator Kennedy and then Senator Warner, if you, if you would, uh, why do you think the FSOC is the right um, organization to be at the tip of the spear on this, given, Senator Warner, what you just said uh, is a somewhat checkered history over the past decade? Senator Kennedy, why don't you take a first whack and then Senator Warner? Well, what I like about FSOC is that all of the mob families are represented. You've got, <laughs> you've got Treasury, you've got, you've got Federal Reserve, you've got the SEC, you've got the CFPB. All of the, the main financial regulators are there, and while we may like some and not like some personally, I think the entity is the right entity to advise us. And let me, let me build on what John said. You know, as somebody who was very involved in Dodd-Frank and helping create FSOC, we thought there are certain problems that rise above the individual, you know, cylinder approach. AI, with all its potential for good and bad, clearly meets that criteria. Uh, again, I think the FSOC's record has been a little bit checkered. Uh, so we are saying, all right, this is a new problem. Go after it. And I'd also just point out, it's not like we're talking about a new laws. Market manipulation is already illegal. What we're saying, though, AI tools can have that market manipulation with such speed and scale, we've got to step back and say, this could really undermine confidence. So give yeah. FSOC the ability, put in place, you know, within existing rules, the ability to have higher level of damages if you create, and put some level of responsibility for those who create these AI models, that if their tools are misused, they would bear some responsibility as well. You know, I want to switch topics just briefly. We may come back to AI in a moment. But I will point out, one of the things that frightens me is the idea that a deep fake could get uh, uh, perpetrated in the financial markets. You could have someone pose as Elon Musk and tank uh, Tesla stock. A short seller could do that. It would be a very easy thing to do. And, and it's sort of the same thing that we fear uh, in the political market. But let me turn, if I might, uh, to, the, to the question of uh, additional military aid to Ukraine and to Israel and what it will it take to achieve progress or a breakthrough in that area. It seems as though progress on border security is the linchpin here. Let me ask each of you that question. What will it take? Uh, do you believe that both Ukraine and, and Israel uh, need and deserve more U.S. military aid, money that actually gets spent uh, in the United States on American weapons most, for the most part? Uh, do, you believe, do you agree that that's needed, and what will it take to get that? Senator Kennedy, why don't you go first? Well, seven weeks ago, when, when the president sent us the bill, my answer would have been different. But here's my answer today. Um, it's up to President Biden. It's clearly up to him. Um, we're, this bill's not going to pass the Senate unless, unless there's a meaningful change to uh, border security. And uh, that's not going to happen. I don't think my Democratic friends will vote for it unless Pre President Biden says to vote for it. And I have no idea what he's going to do. It comes down to this, Tyler. Is, uh, is border security, or lack thereof, more important to him than Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan? That's what it boils down to. 
But the longer we wait, the harder it's going to get. Senator, it's, it's not, uh, Senator Warner, it's nice to see a, a Republican and a Democrat together here on screen. I, why don't you speak back to uh, Senator Kennedy there? No, well, let me and, just tell you. I, I, go ahead. I actually think, well, first of all, we've got to remember, when we don't do Ukraine, the one world figure that gains the most out of that is Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin has said for ages, I'm chairman of the Intelligence Committee, we can just outweigh America, outweigh the West. I hope and pray that doesn't prove to be the case. But I also, we are where we are. And I would agree with John. We've got to do border security as well. Personally, as somebody who's been not in the room, I wish I'd been in the room, but been trying to nudge people along. It took too long for both the president and his team to get in the room. And it took too long for Minority Leader McConnell to get in the room as well. Everybody's in the room at this moment. I think meaningful progress has been made. Uh, I wish it had been done this week. Chances are it's going to uh, get into the new year before it's done. But I'm frankly more optimistic today than I was a week ago. And the good news is we've got one final tranche of Ukraine military aid that will still come before the end of the year. So, so what, Senator Kennedy, what would meaningful progress on border security look like, I guess is, is my question. What, 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 what would the constituents of that, of a package that attempted to do that be? Every, just every senator has got to decide that for himself or herself. Uh, I deal with reality. Reality is that the border is an open, bleeding wound. Um, since President Biden has been president, we've had 8.4 million people come in. Most of them, we don't have the slightest idea who they are. That's four Nebraska's. The president sent us a bill. It included border security. So I, I don't think he should be surprised that we want to talk about border security. Um, but he is going to have to, the posture of the negotiations are such that nobody's going to move until President Biden says, this is what, if anything, I am willing to do on the border. And I don't care what anybody else tells you, that's what this hinges on. And President Biden has not told us yet. Senator Warner, I'll well, give you a quick I, final I word. Would, well, my quick final word is I got an independent vote. I'm going to vote my conscience on this. I think the president put forward month, uh, weeks ago $14 billion on the border. There have been previous approaches on money. Sometimes my Republican colleagues didn't vote for that. But I think we need to do more. I think what you will see, if there's an agreement made, it's going to make folks on both ends of the political agenda mad. But there will be not only money, but meaningful reforms to staunch the flow of people coming across the border. End of the day, and uh, James Lankford, who's been the lead Republican legislator, has said this for a long time, uh, this compromise that will also include Ukraine, Israel, humanitarian aid, and Taiwan, we're probably going to lose a number of Democrats and a number of Republicans. Mm -hmm. But if we don't do that, I think we shirk our responsibility on the world stage. Senators Kennedy and Warner, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, we wish you the best for the uh, holidays and the new year. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right, speaking of AI, which we were speaking about there at the beginning of that conversation, coming up, we'll reveal the results of our latest CNBC SurveyMonkey workforce poll. Power Lunch is back in two. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Let's focus now on AI's impact on the way we work. One of the biggest worries people have about AI is we'll take our jobs. Sharon Epperson joins us now with the results of a new CNBC SurveyMonkey workforce survey. Hi, Sharon. 
Hi, Tyler. You know, artificial intelligence tools are becoming more common in the workplace as employers aim to increase productivity. But a new survey conducted earlier this month of nearly 8,000 workers finds about a third of workers say they've used AI tools at work. 72% of them have used AI and say that it's made them more productive, while 28% who've used AI tools say it's made them less productive. Younger workers have more experience. Gen Z is most likely to have used artificial intelligence tools, with 37% saying they use them at work, followed by 35% of millennials, a quarter of Gen X, and just 17% of baby boomers. Some workers are worried about job security, though. Four out of 10 surveyed are concerned about AI's impact on their jobs, with workers of color, individual contributors, and lower-salaried employees most concerned. And people who already use AI at work are nearly twice as likely to be concerned about its impact on the job than those who don't. But even as the use of AI tools in the workplace is increasing, employees are looking for human input on a range of issues as well. More than half of respondents say it's important for their employer to take a stance on social and political issues. Women and younger workers are more likely to have this view than men and older workers. It's, inter it's interesting to me that the people who've worked with AI seem more concerned about uh, its risks than those who haven't. I guess it's the, <laughs> I I've seen what it can do and I'm worried about it. Exactly. They're seeing, they've seen what it can do and they're worried about it. They're also, you know, not just concerned about AI taking their job. They're also focused on what is the company doing for me now? What benefits are that am I getting that I most need? And what's surprising is those companies, and many of them do this, offering a 401k matching contribution, that's not the drawing card anymore. What employees are saying that they want in terms of financial benefits is number one, pay the full freight for health insurance premiums, then the 401k match, and that's equal to paying for a health or gym membership. So that's what people are looking for right now. Got to leave it there, Sharon. Thanks very much. And thank you for watching Power Lunch. Closing bell starts right now. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Extra, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.